Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you and gather together. Welcome to everybody joining us online via live stream. So glad you're with us. Um, for sake of introduction, if you're new with us, my name is Aaron Stern, I'm the lead pastor here. This is my girlfriend of 32 years, uh, my wife Jossie. And uh, today is Mill City Church's 12th birthday. And so happy birthday to us, to all of us. Yeah, thank God. And, and uh, I was driving early this morning on my way to church and thinking about 12 years ago and the fact that I was driving a box truck to church uh, with everything inside of it that would enable church to actually happen. Uh, here we are 12 years later and we have six box trucks. I don't drive one of them, thankfully. Uh, there are so many others, which got me thinking not only about what God has done throughout the years, but also uh, more specifically, how God works through people and how many people over the years and, and through today have been and continue to be a part of what God has done. And I think of so many people and I see so many faces and some uh, been around for a little while I see, and for a long while. I see Denny Bain and his family and, and been around since the early years, the OGs right here. And, uh, and, and, and I see Roe and Jim Dodgen and, and I see people who have led city groups and Kevin and Katie Flint and, and so many who have built and have been a part of building uh, what God has established here. And, and I see the Stribleys, and I see uh, Chris Kendall, and, and I could go on and on. We could spend the rest of the afternoon uh, talking about all the different people who've played parts, both seen and unseen, on a platform and behind the scenes, and in kids' classrooms, and helping with students, and, and helping uh, with all ages and all different aspects of what it looks like for us to be a community of faith. So uh, I find myself today not only celebrating, but thanking God, and thanking God for you and for every person uh, that has been a part and is a part of Mill City. Um, it really, really makes us so grateful. And so uh, before we jump into the message, I just want to take a moment and uh, have Jossie pray for us and uh, pray not just uh, and thank God for what, is, what has been, but also uh, pray into where we are and where God is leading us. And so if you would, uh, let's pray together. Don't just listen to Jossie pray, but actually lean in and agree with her. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so thankful for who you are. We're so thankful to be daughters and sons of yeah. the living King of Kings and Lord of Lords, humble, victorious Shepherd King. We welcome your shepherding. Thank you for all that you have led us in, and thank you for all that is to come. We ask for immeasurably more than, than we could ask or imagine, as your word says. Your love to be poured out, your spirit to be poured out, your word to be honored and received and bear fruit. For more who don't know you to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. For all of us to mature in our giftings and function in them. For our good and your glory and for the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. For all the things that you have in mind. Align our hearts with yours and lead us. Thank you that you go before us. Thank you that you are at our right hand. Thank you that you are our rear guard. Thank you for the authority of scripture and the authority of you, Jesus, that you overcame sin and death. The lover of our souls, thank you. Thank you. We bless each one here and bless each one who has been apart from the beginning. We couldn't do it without each other all parts of the body under your headship. So be it unto us according to your will, and thank you, thank you, thank you. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen, yes. Happy birthday, Mill City. And, and no birthday celebration would be uh, complete without some sugar. So there's crumble cookies in the lobby on your way out as a celebration of uh, 12 years and counting. Uh, if you would, let's all stand together, if you're able, for the reading of Scripture. I'm reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. You may be seated. We stand to honor God, and to say that the Scripture is God-breathed, that it is authoritative, and that it is trustworthy. To say that the Scripture is authoritative and trustworthy flies in the face of the mantra of our day that says, you be you, which on one hand is a good encouragement towards authenticity, but has morphed into, you live your truth. And ultimately then, Authority comes from within. But Paul addresses where we find authority and what it looks like in our lives in this passage. He starts off by talking about how he's approaching them in humility and in gentleness, and yet he's begging. He's begging and willing to be bold if he has to be, because this is of critical importance. Now, you might say, what is of critical importance? And he says it is the thinking, thinking that we live by the standards of the world. In verse 3, he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Meaning, we're in it, but different. Jesus says in one of, his gospel, in one of the Gospels that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. So if we're in the world but different or unique or weird or peculiar, that is what we're supposed to be. We're in a series called Peculiar People talking about how it is that we are unique as the people of God, not because we're trying to be, but if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, we just will be. Paul goes on in verse 4 and says, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Now, it breaks my heart when I see followers of Jesus fight with the weapons of the world, fight with violence, bullying, engaging in culture wars because somehow someone else is the villain or the enemy and they must be destroyed. When in reality, as followers of Jesus, we should be people who are forgivers, and we pray for our enemies, and we bless those who persecute, and we have enemy love, and we embrace a lifestyle of nonviolence. 
We embody the teachings of Jesus. This is said really well by Leslie Newbegin, author and missionary. He says, I have come to believe that the primary reality of which we have to take an account in seeking for Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation or the church. How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of the many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel, evangelistic campaigns, distribution of Bibles and Christian literature, and even books such as this one. But I am saying that these are all secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back to a believing community. What he's saying and what Paul is encouraging is that we would be a church that lives what it says it believes. And he goes on and says the weapons we fight with, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Thank God for divine power, because I don't know about you, but I find my own power not very powerful. And what he's highlighting here is that there is a war raging between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And it is, it is about, elements of it are about strongholds. In Ephesians chapter 6, another letter written by the Apostle Paul, he says, we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. Now, sometimes when we think of, of, of a stronghold, the, the meaning of this is, is a military fortification. Like it's, it's like we need to demolish uh, something that is like, has some strength to it. We sometimes think of all the strongholds that are out there. And there, may, there are strongholds in our culture. There are strongholds in our community. There are strongholds in churches. But strongholds always start as footholds, and footholds start in hearts and minds. And it's important that we don't just think that the enemy is out there, but the reality is, is the enemy can reside within as well. And he breaks this down even further in verse 5 where he says, we demolish arguments. So demolishing strongholds looks like demolishing arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Of God. This, these arguments and pretensions can be, can be translated as exalted things or thoughts or patterns of thought or as Eugene Peterson says in the message, warped philosophies. Another way of describing it would be ideologies, to demolish ideologies that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. An ideology is reductionistic. In other words, it makes a part of the truth the whole truth. So it reduces uh, aspects that might be true into it being the whole thing. So ideologies might reduce life to power or to gender or to class, or to race. Another way of thinking about 
uh, a pretension or an ideology is to think about idolatry. Idolatry sets up a good thing and makes it an ultimate thing. And so a marriage is a good thing, but if it, 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 we are not to make it an ultimate thing. We can make kids good things. We can make them ultimate things. Family is a good thing, but we can make it an ultimate thing and it becomes an idol. Freedom is a good thing, but we can also make it an ultimate thing. Social justice is a good thing. It's a God thing. But if we make it the only thing, and if we make it the ultimate thing, then it gets things out of order and it warps the way that we think. Ideologies and idolatries in our day oftentimes have a religious tone to them because in many ways if they've become an idol or we have embraced the particular ideology, it means that we've given our allegiance to it, a wholehearted devotion. And as a result, when somebody uh, comes up against it, oftentimes in our culture what happens, we, they get canceled because somehow you can't say that or you can't do that. And we might think of that as an idea and something out there, but I know that I've experienced it, and I would guess that a lot of us, if not most of us in this room, have experienced the breakdown of relationships, whether in a family or close friendships, because of allegiance to an ideology. Divisions that have been about politics, a good thing, but if made an ultimate thing, can sever relationships and blow up families and blow up churches. And so what happens oftentimes in our day is not God or, though that does happen, is oftentimes God and. In other words, in other words it's, it's not a lean towards atheism, but instead a lean towards syncretism. In other words, it's, it's a blending. It's a build your own faith. Maybe somebody would say, well, I, I walked away from faith, but actually they just kind of took the parts they like with them and then added some other pieces in. And it becomes a warped philosophy. It again takes a, takes a piece and makes it into the whole, therefore reducing and eliminating the truth of the whole. Not only is there a religious tone, there's often religious symbols incorporated. It might look like this. Now, I love Jesus, and I love America, but this symbol right here communicates that somehow, and for some it means, that, that Jesus cares more about America than He cares about the other nations of the world, when in reality, God cares about every nation, and He is coming to restore all the nations and to come to reach every tribe and tongue. I saw a while ago a shirt on the back. It said, it said 2AC. I'm like, I wonder what that is. And so I, I made my way around to see if I could see the front of the shirt, if it would describe what I saw on the back, and it said, Second Amendment Christian. Now, I'm not trying to make any political statements here. I just think like we've got, whether it's Jesus and a flag or it's a cross and a gun or it's, it's, it's a cross and a rainbow flag, we've got all these ways that they get con conflated together. Now, if you're nervous <laughs> or if you've got issue with what I just said, 
email Nick Tompkins at... (laughs) The common denominator (laughs) is that we put humanity and our ways and our authority at the center rather than God and His authority and His ways at the center. Because Paul goes on here and says, we need to take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. This make it obedient to Christ phrase is not just about a thought, it's actually about a way of life. He's talking about all of our life being obedient to Christ. A word that's been used throughout the centuries is orthodoxy. The word orthodoxy in Greek is two words put together. Ortho, which is right, and doxy, which is, or doxa, which is belief. Right belief. Now, sometimes when we think about right belief, we think about somehow right doctrine. And so, so it, it, we just got to get the right doctrine in place. And then we end up with doctrine police. But the reality of what Paul is describing here is not just right belief, but actually ideas and practices and ethics that, that encompass the way that we live. So maybe a better understanding is orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right practice or right living. So it's both put together. Neither of those words you will find in the Scripture. But the words we will find in the Scripture that describe orthodoxy and orthopraxy is the way. The way of Jesus. Now, this idea of the way doesn't always settle well in our culture. I mean, imagine if, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe probably none of you get pulled over by a police officer uh, for speeding. So let me just tell you a story about my wife. And, <laughs> you know, imagine getting pulled over for, and the, the police officer comes to your window and, and says, and says, did you know that you were driving 20 miles over the speed limit? And your response was, let me just tell you about my truth. <laughs> it's not going to get you very far. And can I just suggest that my truth is not a phrase compatible with following Jesus? Because my and your undermine the. Jesus said in John 14, I am the way. And I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus didn't say, I am a way. I am a truth. So we don't get to privatize our faith. This series, Peculiar People, has each, each week we've kind of come around to some contra- in the title, a contrast of ideas. And today, what we're landing on is we are a community of the way in a culture of secular ideology, which means that we are radically committed to following Jesus, to following Him and His way, believing Him, believing what He said, and believing and trying to live into what the way that He lived. Now, as we talk about the way, and we talk about truth, and we talk about the truth, I think it's important to make a comment about deconstruction. We live in a culture where deconstruction is a pretty popular word. 
It's oftentimes seen as what the cool kids do. And maybe you've experienced it yourself or are experiencing an element of deconstruction or maybe a, a friend or a close, uh, close family member. I'd like to say that there is both, there's two types of deconstruction. There is a healthy deconstruction and there is an unhealthy deconstruction. Healthy deconstruction is when Scripture is used to critique the world's authority over the church, meaning that we look at the truth of God's Word to evaluate what is maybe infiltrating or has somehow been added to the way of Jesus. There is also unhealthy deconstruction, which is where secular ideology is used to critique Scripture's authority over the church. This sounds like, isn't that kind of outdated? Isn't that kind of like doesn't matter anymore? Like, this is the better way. This is more loving. Jesus encouraged healthy deconstruction. It looks a lot like what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. In other words, maybe I grew up in a, in a home where, in a, around a, in a kind of a church stream that said, if you are a Christian, you vote this way. Now, I think we should vote. I think we should be good citizens. But to attach this is what you must do and how you must vote in order to be a Christian is worth parsing out, is worth separating. Healthy deconstruction always is on its way to reconstruction. It's on its way to building a more vibrant, Jesus-centered, truth-oriented, found in the authority of Scripture way of life. Unhealthy deconstruction is only about deconstruction. It is only about tearing down and is oftentimes deconstruction for deconstruction's sake. Unhealthy deconstruction leads oftentimes to a cold heart and cynicism. Healthy Deconstruction leads to a more vibrant faith. Back to the passage. The Apostle Paul says that we are to take captive every thought that does not set itself up, or that sets itself up against the knowledge of Jesus. I'd like to suggest that if we are not taking something captive, we are being taken captive. In other words, we are inundated with voices and ideas from the culture around us, many of which we don't even understand just because we are, or don't even perceive because we're just swimming in the water of ideology that we're talking about. An ideology that says, believe whatever you want and do whatever you want because that leads to the greatest amount of freedom, when in reality it makes us a slave to our impulses. John chapter 8, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth, not a truth, the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, even to utilize the word sin in our culture is oftentimes uh, frowned upon. Because how are you to tell me what to do? 
And I think it's important that we recognize that it is, it is not our job to tell other people what to do. And I also think that it is important that in response to that type of a, a pushback or maybe somebody saying, our oh, Christians are narrow-minded or restrictive, that actually boundaries are included in love. Jossie and I have four boys, and when they were younger, we might say, go play in the yard and do whatever you want. Now, we also would say, but don't go play in the street. And he'd say, that is so restrictive. You are such a narrow-minded parent. Actually, that's a very loving parent. To say, I want you to play, but you can't just go do it anywhere. See, Scripture may hurt you with the truth, but it will never comfort you with a lie. In Ephesians 6, in the passage where the Apostle Paul talks about our waging war against principalities and powers of darkness, he goes then into encouragement to put on the armor of God. And when we put on the armor of God, he talks about the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness. He also talks about putting on the belt of truth. Now, he's giving metaphors for for an idea of what it looks like to wage war and be people that, that, that win the war in the spiritual. And when he talks about a belt of truth, what it would have come to their mind because of the, the picture he's describing would have been in a day where, where, where people might have wore a toga or a robe or things, and they would have worn a belt to keep it from dragging on the ground so they might not trip on it. Truth keeps us from stumbling. Truth also helps us if we were to stumble. And so I want to be clear here today as we talk about being a community of orthodoxy or more specifically a community of the way. And that is that we are not a conservative church. We are not a liberal church. We are not a progressive church. We are a Jesus church. We are radically committed to the way of Jesus, which means that we are most concerned about being good citizens of the kingdom of God. We don't follow a donkey or an elephant. We follow a lamb that was slain on a cross that we might find true freedom and hope. Amen. We find ourselves, every one of us, surrounded by voices and messages. Sometimes it comes through a television. It might come through the internet. It might come through a radio. It might come on a billboard or a magazine. It's coming from everywhere outside and even from inside, meaning the selfishness of our humanity speaking to us. And yet then we as followers of Jesus come together to hear from an ancient book, to follow the words of a first century rabbi, Because we've heard what everyone else has to say, and maybe even heard what we've had to say, but now we listen to what God has to say. And we say that the words of God and the authority of Scripture is the highest authority of all the other voices and messages coming our way. To be reminded that Jesus is our lead story. 
that he in fact came to save uh, the world from sin and death, that he rose from the grave on the third day to communicate that death had in fact been defeated and that in fact the whole world had been changed and that death will not have the last word, but that life and grace and truth have the last word. To be reminded as we come together who we are, that we are sons and daughters of the king, the one who has authority, the one who says you are loved and you're worth it. And it's not just who you are, but maybe even a little more importantly, whose you are. But as Jackie Hill Perry says, when I begin to forget that I am loved, that I am forgiven, and that I am new, then I stop operating out of faith and instead start to behave as if my thoughts are more inerrant than the scriptures. It's the reason that we say and believe the creeds. We say the Apostles' Creed around here on a pretty regular basis. And, and that creed and other creeds don't say, I create or I invent. They say, I confess or I believe. Meaning that, that it isn't about what I, I want or what I want to decide for myself. But in fact... My identity, my sexuality, my value, how I spend my money, how I spend my time, what my relationships look like, what happens and how I treat my enemies is not determined from within, but in fact determined by the God of the universe. And so our weekly practice this week is to read the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. You can read it once throughout the whole week. You can read it multiple times throughout the week. Whatever the case might be, would you, as you read it, read it slowly enough to identify what you might need to submit to the authority of Jesus. Like what about the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus, his kingdom manifesto. This is what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and participate in the kingdom of God. And how is there anything about your life that somehow doesn't match up and needs to be taken captive and made obedient to the way of Jesus. Maybe it's about anger and contempt. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, don't say, he uses this phrase from the first century, raka, it means like, you idiot. It's a, it's a form of contempt. But he says, you've heard it said, don't say that, but I say to you, if you've had anger in your heart or hate in your heart towards your brother. In other words, he's, he's not just looking for right ideas, he's looking for a right heart. Maybe as you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you get to the portion that talks about serving God and money, and there's an encouragement towards generosity. Maybe you're like, you know what, I, maybe that makes you uncomfortable when you think of you have an opportunity to give. And maybe there's a way that the way that you view or handle your finances would not be in line with the way of Jesus. Or maybe it has to do with judgment. You come to the portion that says, take the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of someone else's. That in fact, we should be intensely intensely dealing with and quick to confess the ways in which we might not follow the way of Jesus. 
Or maybe you come across the part where it talks about, about loving your enemies, praying for those who curse you. Or maybe it's the part that is about forgiveness. And you realize the people that you're holding and the bitterness that is somehow built up in your heart. Or maybe you read through the Beatitudes, the first section of the Sermon on the Mount, and you read across and you think, I don't know that I'm all that meek. Or that I, or that I am a great peacemaker. Or, or I don't know that I do a great job of loving my enemies. Whatever it might be, and there are so many more encouragements, invitations in the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's related to prayer or fasting or it's related to sexuality and lust and the direction of our affections, it's hard to read the Sermon on the Mount and nothing to somehow for us to realize, oh, I've kind of bought into this, new, this ideology. I've made something that's important. I've made it an idol and made it the ultimate thing and not need to submit something in our hearts to the way of Jesus. Now, I recognize maybe for some of you here today as we talk about the authority of Scripture that, that you've experienced the Bible being used as a weapon. That somehow is utilized to manipulate or to control. Or maybe the truth of Jesus was communicated but not in the way of Jesus which ultimately undermines the truth of Jesus. The truth and the way of Jesus are to go together. And somehow, though, it was utilized not as a blessing, it was made to be a burden. My prayer for each one of us today would be to see the truth of Scripture, not as a weapon, not as something to be picked from and somehow just make my own out of this, but to submit our lives willingly and to respond to the invitation of Jesus. Jesus gives his Sermon on the Mount and so many of other of his teachings, and they are invitational. And the invitation is open to every one of us today. Now, I, I want to make it clear that the pursuit of biblical and historical theology is an important endeavor. But Christianity isn't pledging our allegiance to a worldview or to a particular set of doctrines. It's about, it is about pledging our allegiance to a person, to Jesus and His way, which influences then our worldview. See, because it is possible to have right doctrines and still have a wrong heart. Jesus was, expressed His harshest critique of self-righteous religious people who thought they had it all right and they had all the right ways and all the right laws and all the right ways of thinking about it, but he described them as whitewashed tombs. Looked great on the outside, but rotting on the inside. What Jesus is after is each one of our hearts today. He's after our hearts. And just as it was invitational when he walked the planet as a human, he today, through the power of his Holy Spirit, is being just as invitational to each one of us. And for each one of us, the invitation is similar, but maybe to a little bit of a different end. 
The first one might be that you find yourself in church for the first time. Maybe you've, or maybe you've been in church for a while, but you've never, never pledged your allegiance to Jesus and said, I will go your way. Not my way and your way whenever it works together. Or maybe you've been away from church or walked away from God in some form or another and and today is a recommitment to say, you know what, I've tried Jesus and, and I, I'm here to, to come back home and say, Jesus only. But there's another invitation, and it is for all of us to recommit to following the way of Jesus. To come before God in His way with humility of heart, and to say, search me and know me in any way that somehow my understanding of following Jesus has been infiltrated and infected by the world. I submit my life to you, Jesus. Have your way. And so, Father, we all together say we want to follow you. For some of that, for some of us in here, it might be for the first time. For some of us in here, it's the first time in a long time. And for all of us as followers of Jesus, hopefully that's the case every day. And we say it again today. We want to follow you. We want our lives to be made obedient to the way of Jesus. That we might individually and together reflect Jesus in your teachings, in who you are, into the world. May this be true of us individually. May this be true of us collectively as Mill City Church. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and everyone said, Amen.